so excited to have my guest here with me today uh, to share his testimony. Um, Randy Schieffer, is it Schieffer? Schieffer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Randy Schieffer has a just phenomenal testimony. Um, I'm going to let him share his background and what happened, but he had some near-death experiences that are really profound. And there was, there was one piece of it that is evidential that he did have an experience. I think it's going to really captivate you. So uh, so much in this testimony. So Randy, welcome. Oh, thank you so much Julie, for having me. Uh, yeah, can... it, we have, we've talked so many times. I'm so excited to be here today and, and uh, being able to share my journey with all of your viewers. So I'm looking, looking forward to it. I really am. Oh, I'm honored to have you. So you have quite an extensive professional background and I'd love for you to share some of that. Yeah. Let me get into it real quick. Um, I, uh, have a master's degree in forensic science and uh, was a criminal investigator uh, specializing in death investigations for eh, about 30, 35 years, I guess, uh, both professionally and then privately as well. So um, ironically, that was my job to investigate death and, and what happened to people and how they died. Um, but you know, the, the real, and I, often I thought about how did I get into that prof- profession you know why did I choose to go into law enforcement and then work toward becoming this homicide detective and I have to share with you when I was um, 16 years old my family and I were on vacation forget my family obviously my mom and dad and my sister were on vacation in New Jersey and um, my my father who I was very very close with uh, he taught me how to play little league baseball. He was my coach. Uh, you know, I would go to work with him every Saturday morning. He taught me so many things in life, but he was taken away from me so very early in life. Uh, he died of a heart attack uh, in July 1969 when we were in uh, on vacation, as I said. And it, it, that experience itself um, it struck me so hard that, that I didn't realize how it affected me for the next 50 plus years because I, I felt so guilt because I tried to save him. I tried to do pulmonary resuscitation as it was called back in 1969. And, and of course we didn't have the EMTs and the paramedics uh, that we do nowadays. So uh, I did try to save him. I, I and, you know, that whole scene, that whole chaotic scene that eve- that morning with my mom yelling at me and me trying to get, you know, my dad and stuff, um, it had a profound effect on me to one that um, I truly believe through my dad's guidance guided me through my career uh, and my choosing to become a, a homicide detective because his, his death solely traumatized me that and then my sister died at 38 years old from stomach cancer uh, while she was pregnant uh, with her second child. And she had to make a decision of allowing her, aborting her daughter and having surgery or allowing her to you know, grow and develop. And they took um, Paige at, um, I think it was 37 weeks, 38 weeks maybe. Mm-hmm. And a month later, my sister passed away oh. uh, from the stomach cancer. 
another traumatic, traumatic experience with death that I went through. And I really believe that, that, that those experiences uh, led me to fear my own death because I experienced death as pain. I experienced the loss, tremendous loss. I experienced that at a very young age. And um, that caused me to fear my own death. Uh, and because I didn't want my family to experience what I had experienced, uh, that guilt, the, the, the loss, the traumatic feeling that you go through when a loved one dies. So I feared death. I mean, I would go into full panic attacks when uh, I thought about my own death. I mean, yelling, screaming, pounding, um, totally out of control. Um, and growing up, we weren't real, real religious family. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't attend church on a regular basis, you know, and, and God just wasn't really um, present in our, in our lives. I, I, I tell people that that probably about the only time I went to church is, is to, in, to try to impress some girlfriend that I was trying to date somewhere along the line. And yeah. she wanted to go to a sunrise service because I grew up in South Florida. <clears throat> and um, uh, so that was in itself quite an experience growing up. But, you know, when you lose your father so young and then your grandparents and, and then your, uh, uh, my sister, you know, who I was really close with. Because uh, I basically raised her after my father died. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was, my, my older brother was working at the time and my mom had to work. So it was just my sister and I, and even my wife now, we, we will celebrate 50 years of marriage this year. And even when we dated, because we were high school sweethearts, um, you know, she came close with Gina as well, because we would sneak out on dates and have to take my sister with her. And we always stopped somewhere and got our ice cream so she wouldn't rat us out, you know, to, <laughs> yeah. to my mom of where we went or what we did, you know. So, you know, she became close as well. But I think that my childhood and, and those experiences really influenced me to that I feared my death. And my mom, my wife never knew this. She Not, not until after I experienced uh, my near-death experiences that, that I even was able to talk about my fear um, with death. And she is a lifelong Catholic, um, went to Catholic school. My three daughters went to Catholic school. Um, we, I went to church to support them, but it didn't have really meaning to me, you know? Yeah. And um, being in law enforcement uh, and, you know, you become very question, you question everything. Mm -hmm. You know, when you see something, you question it. And I guess we can remember um, some of the comments that were made and, you know, it was like, eh, you know, these guys don't really know, you know, because, you know, being in law enforcement, you're very critical of things because I always had to have evidence. I had to have physical evidence, you know, mm -hmm. when I'm, or when I'm processing a crime scene, I look for the DNA. I look for a fingerprint. I look for hairs, fibers because all of those have individual characteristics that I could connect one person to that crime scene. Yeah. So that was my life, you know, I had to have that physical evidence and church just didn't provide it. 
you know, a lot of what we call circumstantial evidence, you know, that, that God existed uh, and, and that there was an afterlife and there was a heaven. Um, but a lot of times, unless I had an abundance of circumstantial evidence, um, I tend not to try to pursue a, a case in court because circumstantial evidence is, can always be wrong. Yeah. Um, so that's what I, you know, that's kind of my background of, I had to have that real tangible evidence before I believe something. Uh, and my career did, you know, kind of conditioned me that way, if, if you will. Um, but, you know, my father, uh, toward uh, the end of his life, uh, started to work in law enforcement, uh, kind of on a part-time basis. And that kind of intrigued me, you know, the stories that he'd come back and tell and the things that he got to do interest me. So when I went into the Air Force in 1972, I went into, at that time, they were called security police and was, was you know, just an ordinary, you know, street cop, basically, on an Air Force base. Um, you know, we did patrols and responded to crime scenes and did all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, and then <clears throat> I got interested uh, in death and death investigation when I completed my bachelor's degree uh, is in psychology. Uh, and we touched on um, the dying and, and the psychological process of, of, of death. Uh, and we, I remember back then reading snippets about near-death experiences, but, you know, I never pursued it. I never looked into it. I never followed up. It was just part of my educational process that I went through. So then um, I, tra I, I transitioned from security police over to the Office of Special Investigations, Air Force OSI. And that's when I uh, just before then I completed my master's degree in forensic science. And that's when I really became interested in death investigation to the point where they, um, OSI kept me in Washington, D.C. for uh, another year or so to allow, allow me to attend some advanced training uh, at the Institute of um, Armed Forces Institute of Pathology uh, and the uh, Smithsonian Institute uh, wow. there. So I was, and then through some other training, I was able to, I became uh, an expert in blood spatter interpretation, being able to go into a crime scene and, and deduct what happened based on blood spatter. Um, so, you know, I, 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 can tell, I can tell war stories all day long uh, about wow. some of the things that we did and saw. And, oh. But, you know, I've been to so many autopsies from infants to newborns to, you know, uh, senior citizens, you know, that anything that, that died suspiciously or uh, through abuse of some sort, murders, homicides, suicides, um, you know, we attended that. And uh, so, you know, it wasn't until I never thought about um, bringing resolve to so many people, you know, to, to families through my work. I, I never connected that. I never thought about that, you know? Yeah, um, and it wasn't up, having suffered yeah. those traumas yourself, you're saying being able yeah, to. Yeah, I never, I, you know, I, I brought, now that I think about it, you know, and go back and, and um, you know, I touch on that, 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 that I did bring a lot of resolve mm -hmm. because I say that because I, I still feel to this day, I didn't do anything 
instrumental in my life to cause God to grace me with continued life because I should have died. I, I had COVID uh, back in March of 2020, I, I developed COVID and um, you'll hear my story and, and I should not be here. Uh, I should not should be turning it. It was only for his grace that I am here today, but I didn't deserve his grace. I didn't do anything in my life to deserve it. Um, and I still question that today. I mean, I thank him every day for, for allowing me to live another day and to, you know, to spend it with my family. Um, and I still question why me, you know, what did I do to deserve his tremendous, tremendous grace that he bestowed upon me of, of living. But it was March of 2020 when I, um, when I got COVID very early on. Matter of fact, it was toward the end of February, only almost to the, uh, to the, to the day where I started to make fun of COVID. Um, you know, oh, they started to come out with they started to come out with these masks and stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, I got me a paper bag <laughs> and I, I cut the eyes out and the ears and the nose and I put in, in, in a magic marker, I think it was or something. I put in the top COVID mask, you know, www.covid.com, $60 each, you know? Oh. And I got, a, I got a Corona beer and I was holding it up and my wife took my picture and and we just shared it with the family, you know, making yeah. fun of it. Well, almost to the day, March 26th, I went into the hospital with bilateral pneumonia, omitted uh, in critical condition because of COVID. Um, on the 28th of March, they uh, intubated me and my pulse ox got down into the 70s and they immediately did a, an emergency intubation on me. With 20, and within 24 hours of that, they airlifted me uh, over to a larger hospital uh, close by to where we live, and they put me onto an ECMO machine. Mm -hmm. um, ECMO is a heart-lung bypass, you know because of your experience, but they, they, they went into the right, my right jugular with a very large tube mm -hmm. into the heart. And they, that blood is then removed from your body, oxygenated, pumped, and then they pump it back into your, your system. Uh, and it gives my, my lungs an opportunity to rest and to try to heal because my lungs were completely full with COVID glass, top to bottom, completely full, to the point where my right lung actually collapsed. I had a collapsed lung as well. Well, within 24 hours of going on ECMO, my kidneys failed. And I went on dialysis. And uh, a short time after that, my liver enlarged and uh, started to throw blood clots. And then my heart enlarged uh, and my left ventricle wasn't pumping adequately. So ECMO was able to pick up some of the stress off of my heart trying to pump. Um, and uh, my family, my, my young, youngest daughter is a, is a nurse labor and delivery nurse. Um, she didn't know anything about COVID. She didn't know anything about ECMO. She didn't know, all she knew was dad's sick and he's, he's bad. 
um, it scared her when they just intubated me because mm-hmm. uh, she knew then that things were going to go south. And um, I have, I don't know how I've been blessed with such a strong family. Uh, my wife and my girls are just the strongest emotionally people that I know, uh, physically strong. I mean, they endured, I was in a hospital 44 days uh, from the 26th of March until the 8th of May, is when, 9th of May is when I got out, um, in a coma for 22 days. I was in a coma, intubated, on ECMO. Um, my daughter called one of the floor nurses and said, okay, nurse to nurse, what's my dad's chances? And she said, he's 3%. She says, 3% survival. She said, you know, we, things don't look good. She said, I'll be honest with you, they don't look good. Because everybody was dying all around me. Yeah. I think there was five of us on the floor at the time. And I'm the only one that survived. Everybody else had passed. And even the ones coming in after they had passed were, were passing. So I was in a coma tubed up, you know, on ECMO, on, yeah. on, on dialysis. Um, really multi-system organ failure is what you were heading into. Yeah. And I started to bleed internally oh. uh, through the veins because I had to receive uh, blood and, and uh, plasma because I started to bleed internally as well. Um, and that's how bad COVID can affect mm-hmm. someone. Uh, I don't think it can get much worse other than me actually dying. But yeah. Um, my one daughter, my Lisa, uh, was living in Mississippi at the time. And as soon as I got real sick, she came home. And um, uh, my daughter, Kate, was up in Nashville, my middle daughter. She came home. And then my oldest daughter lives close by. And she came up to the house as well to support my wife. And um, once I went into the emergency room, Little did I know that that was going to be the last time I'd see a family member for those 44 days. I mean, the total isolation. And um, so Lisa knew I was sick and she had called a friend of hers who is also a nurse up in Kentucky. And surprisingly, her this other nurse's father um, is the infectious disease doctor. And he called Lisa and talked to her and he says, do you want to get your dad convalescent plasma? And you want to get him it as quick as possible. So she called to the local hospital and said, look, part of our treatment plan is, you know, we want my dad to receive convalescent plasma. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. There's not enough research. There's not enough studies. You know, it's, it's something that we're, we just won't do. But she Bottom. She, she, the whole family steadfast to the point where they finally said, well, if you can figure out how to get it, we'll consider giving it to him. <clears throat> so that's when my middle daughter, Kate, uh, went on to, to uh, social media and she developed uh, a, a, an email or a, a Facebook post, I guess it is, mm-hmm. that went out to over 77,000 people. Uh, it was viewed by 77, you know, just a little bit about me. I served my country, you know, and, and um, that I was real sick and they were looking for someone that had COVID and has tested positive or a negative 
uh, would have the antibodies and it had to be a type A blood. They put this out looking for volunteers and they had uh, two pages of volunteers that came forward and said that they would travel to Florida to, to give me their blood, their antibodies, you know. Wow. Um, lo and behold, there was a young uh, preacher uh, in the town next to us that stepped up and, um, you know, was a perfect match for me. Um, so they had called, uh, the kids had called One Blood, which is our local um, blood um, bank. Yeah. yeah. And they said, well, we, hadn't, we don't have anybody trained to, to take plasma. We don't have anybody trained for convalescent plasma. She said, but we'll get them trained. And they put together training. They worked with their headquarters down in Orlando and got, um, got these two people trained to collect the, the plasma. And they sent the, the machines up that they needed to collect it and, and everything. And they collected his uh, plasma, his convalescent plasma. And with my blood, they put it back on the airplane and sent it down to Orlando for further testing to be sure that we we're gonna be a complete match. And we were, they flew it back up. Um, they called my daughters and said, okay, we've got the plasma and the hospital has it. So they got back on the phone and said, we understand that you have this convalescent plasma. When will my dad receive it? And they said, well, we decided not to give it to him. And um, which, you know, started the questions of why, you know, and they said, well, it's a, it's a blood product and we don't know how he'll react to receiving a blood product. And my daughter said, he's already received blood and plasma. This is just another blood product. You know how he's gonna react. Well, it's unethical. How is it unethical? I mean, they were just throwing excuses that, that, that they didn't wanna give this. We're not a research hospital. We're not a teaching hospital. You have to have emergency authorization from the, CD, from the health department to mm -hmm. give it. Well, my daughter got on, found the paperwork, got a doctor to sign it. Uh, so I became the first person in Northwest Florida to receive convalescent plasma and the 34th in the nation to receive it because my number on the emergency authorization is 000034. So I became the 34th person approved for convalescent plasma. Wow. Uh, my daughter got a phone call. Oh, my oldest daughter. What was my oldest daughter doing? My oldest daughter developed a prayer chain and it went out uh, on the internet as well. And she gave, a few months back, she gave me a map of the United States with little dots on it where she had somebody praying in that location. 45 states. She had someone praying for me and five countries. She had people in five countries praying for me. And I say that, I say that because I'm not worthy. I wasn't worthy of all that. These people did not know me, you know? Um, but they reached out and wanted to help some way. Me, what did I ever do? 
you know. Um, it just, I'm just so blessed that I've been touched by so many different people and so many different strangers that, you know, wanted to come and help in some small way. It's just, it just touched my heart, you know. Um, so she was, she was in charge of prayers. Lisa took on the hospital and Kate worked with one blood and, and, um, uh, my wife just held them all together, you know, mm -hmm. um, my wife is part Italian, so she likes to cook. So mom was in the kitchen cooking while the kids were, you know, helping to save dad. So they got a phone call on um, Good Friday of 2020, April the 10th, I think it was, that said that they got permission to give me the convalescent plasma. And uh, they received, I received it on Good Friday. By Easter morning, they capped the ECMO machine. My lungs had cleared up that quickly. Wow. Um, by Easter, they capped the ECMO. That means they turned it off. Um, by that Tuesday, my kidneys were fully functioning. I came off of dialysis by that Tuesday. My liver returned to normal and my heart returned to normal. Uh, and to today, I have no after effects. My lungs are perfect. I have 98% use of my lungs. Nothing wrong with my heart. Nothing wrong with my kidneys, my liver. It's a miracle. It really is a miracle that I know so many people that came out with issues. You know, they came out on oxygen. Um, you know, I had to learn to walk again and I had to learn to swallow. I had to learn to talk because my voice was damaged from being intubated for so long. My one vocal cord is, is damaged, <clears throat> but that's a small price to pay. Um, so while, and I, I say that only as kind of a background um, to, to let people know what my family was doing while I was laying up in the hospital, um, enjoying myself for those 44 days. Um, because I was out, you know, I yeah. was, I was in my coma. I had no clue what was going on, but, um, I do remember I had dreams and I had hallucinations. Uh, I can tell the difference today. I can tell you the difference. My dreams usually involved people, my family who are alive. Um, and it was kind of ironic because I didn't know, obviously, what my family was doing, fighting so hard to save me. Um, but my one, a couple of my dreams involved my family, and I got lost, and they came and saved me. So I think God was trying to tell me my family is working for me. Mm -hmm. You know, my family is is working. So I I had dreams, and then I had some other dreams that involved Kate and you know, kind of crazy stuff. But then I also had hallucinations because I was on ketamine and some pretty heavy drugs. And I can tell those as well. Like the time I, I woke up and I woke up to um, multicolored flashing uh, like lightning bolts coming at me, you know? And um, I remember my, eye, my eyes were closed and I, it was like scary. I was scared and I didn't always have, so I opened my eyes. Well, when I opened my eyes, I started to hear this god awful music and I looked up on the ceiling and I had 
nine dancing panda bears <laughs> dancing on the ceiling, you know? <laughs> so it was that time, that was the first time I remember saying to myself, all right, you're dead. You died. But if I died, this must be hell because there's no way I can watch them for eternity. <laughs> but if I close my eyes, I had the lightning bolts, you know? Yeah. Um, so definitely hallucinations. And then there was the time that I have uh, three dogs and I remember looking, again, it's a hallucination, but I remember looking out the, uh, the window in the hospital door. And for some reason, I thought there was birthing pools across the hallway. Mm-hmm. And my dogs were over there swimming and playing in the birthing pools. <laughs> just, just stuff that didn't make sense. You know yeah. what I mean? It's just bizarre, stupid. Yeah. So um, uh, when I when they brought me out of my coma, uh, and and kind of reality set in that, you know, I'd been out for so many days, twenty two days, and and uh, I missed the whole month of April. Um, you know, I missed Easter, I missed Kate's birthday, I missed all kinds of stuff. <clears throat> they finally allowed Lisa to come in and stay with me because she was a nurse. And um, she said, look, I'll come in, I'll take care of him. You know, I only call you if I need something. So they finally agreed to let her come in. And, and when she walked through that door, um, I wasn't going to let her out, trust me. I latched onto her quick, you know. Yeah. And we had some very nice, tender moments. Uh, and she kind of explained to me what had happened. I said to Lisa, I said, you know, when they brought me out of my coma and she's at my bedside. And I said, Lisa, I said, some things happened to me that um, I, I, I don't know what happened. And she was, what are you talking about, Dad? And I said, I traveled. I said, I traveled places. I went, she's, where, where did you travel to? Now, Julie, I didn't have any reference to what had happened. So I was trying to explain to her what had happened to me with terminology that I was only aware of. You know what yeah. I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, and like this I said, wasn't your hallucinations. This was something different. Yeah, I told her. I told her my dreams and I told her hallucinations. Yeah. And I said, but I had this other experience that she's, what are you talking about? I said, well, Lisa, I said, I think I went to to a big city, London or Paris. I said it was beautiful and clean. And she goes, well, it wasn't London or Paris because neither one of those were real clean, you know? But um, <laughs> so at the time I was trying to explain where I was and, and I, I was struggling, you know, to do it. Um, and it wasn't until really I got home and uh, come home from the hospital and started to try to figure out what the heck happened to me that I stumbled on more near-death experience. And as I, as I started reading and listening to some of these other testimonies, it started to dawn on me that, wait, that's where I was. I experienced that. I saw that, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and I remember my, my consciousness waking up. Um, I don't, I, I didn't have a body. You know, I don't remember arms and legs. It was just my consciousness. And I woke up and I, and I told Lisa initially, I thought I was in an airplane, a dark tunneled airplane, you know, mm-hmm. but I was in a tunnel. I was in this tube 
and I was going somewhere. I wasn't traveling through it fast, uh, as some people have reported, but I, I knew I was moving through this tube, or my consciousness was. And on each side of, the, of, of this tunnel, there were uh, like little windows, almost like on an airplane, you know? And I could see this brilliant light that encased this tunnel. And I felt, I said to myself, okay, you died, but where are you going? I remember saying that to myself. Mm -hmm. And I felt so warm and so calm. Now, somebody that feared death and feared dying, you would think that I would panic. You know, common sense tells you, I'm, gonna, I'm dying, I'm dead, oh my God, and I would panic. But none of that ever sat in. I was at so much, I was at such a peace, calm feeling. I, uh, and and it, you just felt so warm and loving going through this tube. And I remember coming to the end of it and my consciousness was in a big hall, big, beautiful, golden hall. Um, and I can describe this to you to detail. It had um, three big arches on each side of the hall. And it looked like there was other tunnels that came off of the hall into maybe different parts of this building. And they were all outlined with this beautiful gold inlaid stone and things and big, huge, three big, huge uh, chandeliers, beautiful chandeliers were on the ceiling and the windows uh, were, were um, beautifully uh, stained glass windows, you know, just in, in different patterns and shapes. And this magnificent light was coming in, you know, through these stained glass windows and there were water features, you know, throughout, which is absolutely beautiful. I remember standing like on a mezzanine overlooking down onto this this room and this now that I now that I know this spirit came up to me and uh he had he had brown hair kind of long brown hair and a, and a beard and a dark robe on and I said what a beautiful building what a beautiful room and he said yes it's one of our most popular spots that people like to come to and I said, this is absolutely beautiful. I said, you feel so warm and at peace. And he says, yes. He said, but you don't belong here. He said, you have to leave. And he pointed to some big, beautiful oak doors, big, magnificent oak doors. And I remember my consciousness moving out through those doors and down some steps into a beautiful city. So it was a golden city city of gold or just absolutely the sky skyscrapers were just as tall as you could see and they were opaque windows outlined in gold and I remember walking through and there was no traffic there's no cars or you know anything and I could sense that movement was going on around me but I couldn't see anybody um, and that puzzled me a little bit why I couldn't see others but as I moved through this city, I was passing parks. The parks were at green, 
luscious green grass. The parks were meticulously maintained. And I've traveled up to the highlands of Scotland and Ireland, and I've seen some beautiful green grass, but this was not even compared to the beauty of these parks. Beautiful trees and flowers. And I remember there's some children playing in these parks and I'm commenting how beautiful this, this city was. And I was meandering through and then all of a sudden I realized I was lost and I couldn't find my way back. I didn't know how to get back to that hall where I was before. And I started to get scared and, um, and panicking. Uh, uh, and I remember sitting down uh, on a curb, I imagine, but I remember sitting on the side of the road and I was, I was yelling to these people I couldn't see, you know, help me, I'm lost. Can someone just help me, please help me. And nobody was responding. And I remember looking over my shoulder and there were all of a sudden there was this beautiful staircase, this beautiful white staircase that just went up into the sky. As far as you could see, it just went up. And I remember saying, if I could get to that staircase, I can crawl over and maybe someone will see me and someone will find me. So I remember my consciousness moving over and I started to move up this staircase. And I say crawl because that came to mind that I was trying to crawl up this staircase. <clears throat> I have no clue of how far I got or you know, where I was, but I remember hearing this male voice come on. And he said to me, he says, there he is, there's Randy, get him. And it was like somebody grabbed me by the shirt collar and just whisked me off the steps. And I say in, in the book that I'm writing, I say that I, that I just returned to my dark little sedated world because the lights went out, you know? And, uh, and, and that's the last that I remember of that episode. But I was back in that city I remember waking up, my consciousness waking up, and I remember being back in that city, and I knew I was in a different part of it, just as beautiful and just as stunning. But I said to myself, I know where those steps are. I'm gonna make my way back to those steps, and maybe I can be found. So I did that. I remember going back up the steps again, and that same voice, there he is, there's Randy, get him. So I turned, my consciousness turned and looked, and I saw this older gentleman with white hair, white flowing hair and a white beard and with, with, a, with, a, with a light colored robe on. He was the one that was grabbing me off of that staircase and returning me back to my little, my little dark world, you know? Um, and I get, I, got, I, got a, I get questions sometime, well, if you were in heaven, why would God allow you to suffer? Why would he put you through being scared and, and yeah, cold? Yeah, I thought that too, yeah. Yeah, and why would he allow you to do that? And the only, and this is what I truly, truly believe. I, going back to my childhood, I didn't have a religious background. You know, I never read the Bible, never talked to, I mean, God and religion, surprisingly, was really kind of, not discussed, even in the house. Even when kids went through 
Catholic school, you know, they'd come home and say a little prayer for dinner and things, you know, but never, I never did it, you know, because I didn't know how to talk to God. Um, I didn't know anything about him, you know, I didn't know about heaven. I didn't know about uh, any of that stuff. <clears throat> and, you know, and, and so I was that lost sheep that the Bible talks about, you know, and God had to let me suffer so I could be found. And that to me was his way of showing me that he is there for you and you can be lost and you can stray from, from the church and organize religion if that's your thing that you want to do. But, um, you know, that, that he is there for you and he brought me back. You know, it was just like that little shepherd that went out and found that one sheep and was so proud that he brought back that one sheep, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I really think he had to let me do that because you got to remember, my world evolved around physical evidence. Mm -hmm. I had to have tangible physical evidence before I would believe something. Because mm -hmm. um, I remember sitting in mass sometimes and the, the preacher would say, in hopes of rising again. And I would say, in hopes what do you mean in hopes of rising again man you're the catholic church don't you know you know you, yeah. you should know of hopes of rising again and i have to say say that you know and this also had a big influence i believe in my in developing my belief is that organized religion and I, whatever your belief is whatever god bless you for it you know if that's what works for you but for me that organization failed me. Mm -hmm. uh, like when my sister died, we went to the church for comfort and support. And I remember talking to the priest that morning. He goes, well, what do you want me to do? She's going to die. You know, I told him that my, my sister had gone into hospice. And, and he goes, mm -hmm. well, you know, he says, well, I hope this isn't going to take, take very long because I got other things I need to go do. What? And yeah, and as far as I'm sitting here, and, um, you know, so it, I was failed in so many different ways. I can give you a little stories like that, that I was just failed by organized religion. But spiritually, I'm strong now, spiritually. I love God and I love talking about it, you know. Um, but I, I'll tell you, uh, my consciousness awoke another time. And remember now, I don't know the sequence of any of these stories. All I know is they happened sometime probably between March 28th when I really was sick and went on ECMO mm -hmm. until April the 10th, that good Friday when I got convalescent plasma, that time period. So I have no idea of the sequence of them or anything. But I remember my consciousness waking up and I was walking down a pathway and the pathway, dirt pathway, and on both sides, were absolutely gorgeous flowers and trees. It was such a beautiful surrounding area. And I was walking, moving, I should say, down this little pathway. Didn't know where I was going. I remember saying, you're dead, or you died. Um, you know, and, and wasn't sure where I was. Um, but out of nowhere, this little boy appears. Um, and he's very, very animated. And he had what we call the, a bowl haircut, you know, <laughs> yeah. and he had dark hair 
um, olive skin, no shirt on, and a little pair of shorts. You know, the what do they call those? Uh, they come down just below your knees, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. barefoot. You know, he was barefoot, but very animated. Follow me, follow me, follow me. So I did. I followed him. And he took me into a, another room. Uh, and this room was just as beautiful. I had the big, round, red pedestal uh, chairs throughout, you know, and, and they're a big picture window. And he told me, he says, wait here, I'll be back. And again, when you're there, time, you have no idea how long you're in heaven. You don't know if it's five minutes or five days or how long I was there. But I remember waiting and I was looking out this picture window and there was a, a, a river that ran underneath the building and it meandered off into the distance, but it was lined with the same type of beautiful flowers and trees, just absolutely gorgeous setting. And there was some people in the water, not frolicking and having a good time or anything, but they were leaned up against the back or the bank of, of, of this river, just talking and relaxing, you know. And I was sitting there just taking in this beauty of this area. And the little boy comes back and he goes, I'm sorry. He says, you have to leave. And I said, no, I don't want to leave. I said, I feel, I said, I, I feel so calm and so welcoming, so loved. And I said, this is such a beautiful, beautiful area. I said, I don't want to leave. And he goes, no, I'm sorry. Your room isn't ready. You have to leave. And with that, I went back into my dark little sedated world, you know, that quickly. Um, you know, that was a verse in the Bible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I think it's in John where he mm-hmm. says, I will go and prepare many rooms. My, my Lord tells us many rooms, but my room wasn't ready. So I wasn't allowed to stay. They sent me back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my, I have a very, you know, in life, I have always been diligent in what I do, you know, very focused. And my kids would always say, you know, dad, you're like, you know, you get a hold of an idea or a thought, you know, and that's how my, that's how my soul is, you know, because mm-hmm. here I was there, what, three times so far, I got kicked out each time and they're still, <laughs> I'm, I'm still going back, yeah, you know, sneaking in. <laughs> sneaking in the back door, you know, <laughs> they're going to get tired of me after a while. But I keep sneaking back, you know. Um, but I went back into my little dark, sedated world, you know. And um, and my la- the last story here is, um, I remember my conscious waking up, and I was in like a, a void area. It wasn't dark, dark, you know. It wasn't pitch black. It was like a very late dusk, you know. You could see a little bit, but not clearly. Mm-hmm. And these little light orbs not were passing me every once in a while and I remember standing there again thinking I died but where am I and the spirit comes up to me and and telepathically I got a message that I needed to follow him no words were spoken but I knew that I needed to follow him so we started to move through this darkened area and I will say as we moved 
deeper it got, it seemed to get darker. Because Julie, you've been on, you've been to the theater, mm -hmm. and you remember sitting there looking at a dark stage, and then all of a sudden, up in the corner, this little light comes on, and that light gets brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter until you see an actor or an actress sitting or standing there, you know, on the stage. Well, as we move through, this little light off to my left hand side started to come on and it got brighter and brighter and brighter. And all of a sudden I saw my deceased mother-in-law sitting there, just as clear as what I'm looking at you today. I saw her, I mean, it was no shadow, no doubt in my mind that it was my deceased mother-in-law. And she um, unfortunately passed away of Lou Gehrig's disease. And that is a devastating on the body and the mind, you know, just absolutely terrible. But I tell my wife, I said, she looked to be probably in her 30s, mid 30s. And I said, Donna, my wife's name is Donna. I said, Donna, she, she was beautiful. I said, she was sitting in this chair very regally. And she had, she always had long hair, but she had her hair all pulled up into a bun with a white ribbon around her the, the bun of her hair, and she had a white robe on and with a with a like a white belt or light ribbon around the middle. And she was sitting there very regally and very majestic. And she looked over at me. And I was yelling her name, Dolores, Dolores, it's me, Randy, it's me, you know. And she looked away. She looked away. Didn't she would not acknowledge me. And then all of a sudden off to the left again, my deceased brother-in-law ran by very quickly. Didn't acknowledge me, didn't acknowledge his mother, but I knew it was Mark. Mark died of a drug overdose um, fairly young. Yeah. And, um, you know, it goes to add to my story of tragic deaths, okay? Yeah. You know, from my dad's heart attack to cancer to Lou Gehrig's to drug overdoses. Um, but he ran by very quickly. And I told my wife, I said, you know, he was probably late teens. It was Mark in his late teens, you know, running mm -hmm. around heaven, which would have been him, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> so suddenly my spirit told me we needed to move on. My spirit guide told, told me I needed to move on. So as we were moving deeper, that little light. Now remember in heaven, time is irrelevant and space. You're not... Uh, limited by peripheral vision. You can see all around you. You know what's going on all around you. So as we moved deeper, I could see the light that was over my mother-in-law slowly fading out and just disappeared. But as that one disappeared, there was another light that came on in the distance. And it was some distance away from me. And the light got brighter and brighter until the point that I knew automatically, I felt it in my, in my heart, if I had one, that it was my father, my mother, and my sister standing there looking at me. And I started to yell at them, you know, mom, dad, Gina, it's me, it's me, it's me. Yeah. And uh, my dad turned away. My dad turned away. 
I didn't see them as clearly as what I saw my mother-in-law. Yeah. And then after a few minutes or seconds, I don't know how long, my mother and my sister turned away. But at the same time, I felt that there was a barrier, some type of a barrier between me and them, you know? And my daughter said, well, dad, that would have been the veil of death. Mm -hmm. And they turned around and didn't want to acknowledge you because, and I was yelling at them, trust me, I was yelling at them, you know? And I was got so frustrated because of it, but they didn't want me to pass through the veil. I had to stay on this side of the veil and they didn't want to encourage me yeah. to pass through because they knew I wasn't allowed to be there, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, again, yeah. again. <laughs> yeah. but they knew. Um, yeah. and, and, was, and, and, and as that, that light was dimming off, way off to my right-hand side, for some reason, this little orb of light caught my attention. And it came up very rapidly toward me. And it came around and it stopped right in front of my face, inches away from my face. And I saw a human face for an instant. I saw this face, but just long enough for him to say to me, tell Madison at the salon, her grandfather's okay. And he moved on to a white porch and he was on this white porch and he started making red, white, and blue ribbons and American flags. And I knew instantly he was a veteran. You know, I'm a veteran. I served 20 years in the Air Force. Um, I just knew it. I just felt it that he was a veteran. You know, I just knew it. And shortly after that, my spirit guy said, you have to leave. You have to go. And I went back into my dark little sedated world. You know. So as I said before, when, when Lisa was with me and they brought me out of my coma and everything, I tried to explain to her all of these things, you know? Mm -hmm. And she said, Dad, she goes, well, who's Madison? And I said, I have no clue who Madison is. I said, I don't know a Madison. And she's, well, did you recognize the person's face. I said, no, I didn't, I didn't recognize. I don't have no clue who he was. I said, but I feel a veteran, a fellow veteran wants me to deliver a message. I said, I have to do it. You know, I said, I have to, she said, well, how are we ever going to find Madison? I said, I don't know. I said, but I've got to try. So like I said, I came home from the hospital and I was on my, as a, kind of a combination of wheelchair and, and walker, you know, depending upon who was there to catch me. And uh, uh, so I remember this dresser right behind me, um, something drew my attention. I was here in my bedroom and um, in my wheelchair and something drew me to that dresser. And I started to rumble through, you know, everybody has a junk drawer, you know, I started rumbling through this junk drawer of mine and I came across a business card to a local barbershop. And I looked at it and I said, hmm, you know, I've been in a hospital for, for you know, six weeks and probably another month before that. So my hair needed a trim. So I wheeled it out to my, 
my wife and um, I said, hey, I said, could you call and, and see what they're doing with COVID, seeing if they're cutting hair or what the, the policy is, you know? So, uh, and I came back into my bedroom because this is where I felt comfortable because mm -hmm. I came out of ICU with uh, ICU delirium mm -hmm. and some PTSD. Um, so I felt this was my comfort zone, you know, for quite a while. And even to this day, I don't like the dark. I don't like sleeping is very hard for me to do. And I don't like, you know, nighttime at all. But I was back here and a few minutes later, Lisa walked in and um, um, I tell people, I'm the interrogator in the family, you know, the boyfriends, you know, girlfriends, I'm the interrogator. Well, Lisa comes in and she starts interrogating me. Dad, where did you get this card? I said, I got it out of my dresser, you know? She goes, no, no, where did you get the card? I said, Lisa, I said, I don't know. I said, I just found it in my dresser. And she said, have you been to this barbershop before? I said, yeah, it's right down the street. I've been there a couple of times, probably. And um, she said, have you ever looked at this card? I said, Lisa, what are you talking about? You know? And she said, Dad, I think we found your Madison. And she handed me the card. She goes, look at the card. And clearly, really clearly written right on the card, Madison Logan was right on the card. Oh, my gosh. And she goes, do you know this girl? I said, no, I don't know a Madison. I said, but make an appointment with her. So Madison's story gets me every time. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. It's beautiful. <clears throat> so we went down and uh, she made an appointment. And I wasn't driving, obviously. So Lisa went with me. And um, my wife was going to go, but she said, Lisa, you go. I don't think I can handle this. So Lisa went down with me and um, uh, they allowed us to come inside because I was in a walker and they allowed us to come inside to sit. Everybody else was outside. And Lisa said, she's dad, who's Madison? Which one of the, that had like six, seven barbers in there. And she goes, who's Madison? And I said, I don't know who, Ma I said, I don't know which one is Madison. And there was probably four ladies, maybe five ladies. I don't know. So this young girl comes up and she goes, hi, I'm Madison. She goes, I think you're next, I, you're my next appointment. And uh, I said, hi, you know, my name's Randy. And, and I sat down and um, um, she's, you know, asked me how I want my hair and stuff. And so she's cutting my hair <clears throat> and Lisa tells her, she said, uh, you know, my dad's had COVID. He was in a coma. You know, she kind of prepped her up for it. And I said, Madison, I said, um, do you mind if I ask you some personal questions? And she goes, no, 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 go ahead. What? And I said, are both of your grandfathers still alive? And she says, no. She said, um, the grandfather that I was closest with passed away. Um, she said, less than a year ago, uh, he passed away. I said, oh, I said, did he live in the local area? And she goes, oh, no, no. She said, um, he lives up in Iowa. She goes, I'm the only one um, down here in Florida. Um, she goes, I'm down here with my husband. She goes, he's a doctor of physical therapy. And she said, we're down here, you know, just graduated from college and he's getting his first degree. 
And I said, has he ever visited this area? She goes, nope, he's never come down, not, you know, never come down. And uh, I said, was he a veteran? And she goes, yeah, she said he was a veteran. She goes, he talked about being in the army and, and you know, something about Vietnam and things. So Julie, by this time I figured, okay, I probably got the right girl here. So I said, Madison, I said, I think your grandfather came to me and he has a message for you. So I told her, I said, he, this is exactly what he told me. Tell Madison at the salon, your grandfather's okay. I said, he wants you to know that he is okay. And of course she's crying, I'm crying, you know. Other people in the barbershop are saying, don't go to that hairdresser. She, she's gonna make you cry. <laughs> and so finally, after we got our, we composed ourselves, I said, Madison, I said, your grandfather moved on to a white porch. I said, is that somehow important to you? And she goes, that would have been his porch in Iowa. She said he had a white porch that he loved to sit on. She said after he retired, she said he was out there every day playing with a computer, working, you know, yelling at the people as they went by and stuff. She loved sitting outside. I said, well, he started making red, white, and blue ribbons and American flags. I said, does that have a connection? She looked at me like I had a third eye. She, I mean, she literally stepped back and looked at me like I had a third eye. And she finally got the words out. She said, he belonged to the American Legion. And she goes, every Veterans Day, she says, my whole family would go down and make red, white, and blue ribbons and American flags for the veterans' graves. How would I know that? I didn't know this family. I had never met this family. Uh, even if she cut my hair before, you don't have those type of personal, or at least I don't have those type of personal conversations with somebody that I'm in a chair for, for, I mean, I don't have any hair, um, you know, 10, 15 minutes at the most, you know, and I'm gone. Um, I didn't, would never know that, you know, but God gave me my proof. He said, you want physical evidence? I'll give you the physical evidence, Yeah. you know, because you didn't believe me at the steps, you know, you didn't believe me at, at the little boy in the room, your room wasn't ready. Uh, my gosh, I'm going to give you some, <laughs> I'm going to give you some physical evidence, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, the family and I have gotten close. Come to find out, I got to talk. John is, is the spirit. His name is John. Um, he did serve in the army, served in Vietnam. Wow. I've talked to his wife. And this is actually the second time John has sent her a message. Wow. The second, the second time that she has received a message from John. Right after he died, she was going through his dresser and found a business card. What? Yep. And it had an, a phone number, a man's name, and an insurance company. So she thought maybe he has an insurance policy that she didn't know about. So she dialed the number and a man answers. And she goes, are you so-and-so with, he goes, no, ma'am. He goes, that's not me. And she says, oh, she says, well, I found this business card and it has this name on it and this phone number. He goes, well, what's the phone number? So she told him, 
And he goes, oh, no, he's, ma'am, you misdialed the area code. She says, you know, she's, well, where am I calling? She goes, well, you're calling California. She goes, this is a private residence in California. And she goes, oh, I'm sorry. She said, he goes, well, where are you calling from? And she goes, well, I'm calling from Iowa. And um, she says, my husband passed away. She goes, oh, she's, my name is Kathy, you know. And she goes, my husband recently passed away. And I found this business card in his dresser. And he goes, no, ma'am. He goes, that's the right um, digits. She's, but you dialed the wrong area code. And he says, wait a second. He goes, did you say your name was Kathy? And she goes, yeah, from Iowa. She says, yeah. He goes, let me tell you a story. He said, three or four months ago, he goes, I was in a terrible motorcycle accident. And the paramedics told me when they pulled me off the asphalt, I was dead. I was gone. And he goes, but the only thing I heard was someone yelling at me. Tell Kathy from Iowa, John is okay. And he goes, he repeated it and repeated it. And he goes, I kept yelling back to him. I don't know a Kathy in Iowa. And he kept saying, tell Kathy in Iowa, John is okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And wasn't that an amazing story? That is phenomenal. Man, John, he is, he's hardcore. He's, yeah, yeah, he's, he's pesky like me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, wasn't there also, you, you explained to her what his appearance looked like and wasn't she able to provide a photo? She asked me, she said, um, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. She said, because um, I told her you stopped in front of me. And mm-hmm. she said, did you have a look at his face? And I said, yes, very, very briefly, though. And she goes, let me show, send you a picture. And so she sent me a picture. And it was actually two. John, what he looked like when he died. And then John, when he was in his 20s uh, in Vietnam, he had his uniform on. And it was a picture taken of Vietnam. And she had asked me, she says, what did he look like? And I said, well, he had dark hair and maybe a, a light mustache of some sort and that's when she sent me the picture after i described him to a t i said the man i saw i looked at that picture and i said that's and i called her back immediately and i said kathy i said that's who i saw i said there's no doubt i said that's who i saw wow i love that and i love that uh you have been invited to sit on that very porch yes i'm gonna go up this summer <laughs> And I'm going to find John's house and I'm going to sit on his porch and I'm going to have my picture taken and I'm going to have a sit, tell John right then and there, buddy, I'm sitting on your porch. (laughs) Come, come visit me. Come visit me. You know? Oh, it's amazing. I'm sure he'll be there. Oh, I love it. What what I don't understand is how did John know that? Mm -hmm. How did John know that there was some remote connection between me and Madison, you know? I didn't know her, I never talked to her seriously, but he knew it. He knew that I had a connection to his granddaughter and he was gonna get a message. Maybe it was a God-ordained thing. Yeah, and something that, yeah. Mm -hmm. And something else I found very interesting after talking to Kathy, because. Kathy explained to me how John died and he was at home, um, died of a heart attack and his his other Madison's younger sister was with him. And 
Kathy had gone out for the day and had come back to pick something up. And he was in the back bedroom and didn't see each other, but he just yelled out. He goes, okay, Kathy, I'll see you later. Kathy left. And she said she wasn't maybe 15 minutes down the road when the phone rang and it was the other granddaughter. And she said, John collapsed. I can't get him up. She goes, he's something's wrong. Something's wrong. And she said, call the call, call, call 911, call 911. So the time Kathy turned around and got back, John was gone. And, um, but um, his granddaughter um, felt guilty that she couldn't save John. Now look at the parallels between the way I felt and my guilt and the way my dad died compared to the way John died and the guilt of his granddaughter. The, the, the parallels there and the veteran, me being a veteran, um, the way wow. God has put, he, I mean, he has a plan yeah. and the way that he put the pieces of that puzzle together um, is just absolutely mind boggling, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I have become much more spiritual. I've got my physical evidence. <laughs> um, I no longer fear death. No yeah. longer. Uh, trust me, if this we would not be having this conversation about death three years ago. Yeah. You know, I just couldn't even talk about it. Uh, and I was like my mother. My mother could never talk about it. You know, anytime we asked her, she died when she, she was 89. And um, anytime we talked about it, she'd start crying and just, you know, can't discuss it. I can't discuss it. And uh, it wasn't until much, much later than, you know, she finally told my brother what, what her wishes were, you know? Yeah. We just never talked about it. Well, and I wonder but if, I, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I just saying, I, I just, I no longer fear. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sure she had a hand in allowing me to experience that, to relieve me of that guilt that I had over my father. Yeah. To relieve me you know, of my fear of death and dying um, because it was real and I just could not stand it, you know? Yeah. And I lived with that guilt, like I said, 50 plus years um, that I lived with that. that and, and it wasn't until therapy that I went to and, and um, because of the PTSD coming out of the ICU is that this came out, you know, and, and we're, we're talking about all of this and um you know I, I better understand it now but i have released the guilt you know because it was god's plan for my dad to die no matter what i would have done you know um yeah. because look what he did for me it wasn't my time to go and he gave me put kept pushing me back four times mm -hmm. you know and that was his plan his plan was for me to come down and live in peace and to help share his message that he is real, that there is an afterlife and it's beautiful. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't get a lot of people say, well, why couldn't you see the people in, 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 in the city? Cause I wasn't supposed to be there, you know, yeah. I wasn't supposed to be there. So I wasn't allowed to experience that. Yeah. Um, some people have a life review. I didn't have a life review. Yeah. I didn't go deep enough. 
You know, I, I do believe that there are different tiers, realms, different realms of heaven. And I was in that beginning tiers, you know, yeah. uh, my spirit was. Uh, and so I wasn't allowed to progress as others have to get the life review. And, and, you know, I mean, there's been many stories of, you know, actually talking to Jesus and, and sharing so much information uh, in that, in that, in that way. Um, I do believe I, I have one more experience. I don't know if you have time for it or not, but I have one more experience that I'm still, I'm struggling with. I'm not sure what happened. Yeah. Or who it was talking to me. Mm-hmm. Um, some say it was God, but um, do we have time? Are yeah. we okay? Go ahead. Can yeah. I share? Got a few minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I um, I woke up. My spirit woke up, knowing that I was dead. I was in a helicopter with two other dead bodies, and we were on our way to Dover Air Force Base to mortuary affairs at Dover Air Force Base. And if you're familiar with that, that's where those who die in combat are taken and prepared for for burial. They put their uniform on and be sure that the military member is taken care of. And that's where I was going. No doubt in my mind, that's where I was going. We landed and I heard rhythmic marching off in the distance and the back of the plane opened up. And they said, we are the honor guard to remove the body of, and they took one of the deceased soldiers out and they marched off. They came back and they did it with the second soldier. And I'm laying there saying, okay, when is my turn? When, you know, when are they going to come get me? And then I remember someone rubbing my hand and it was skin to skin contact. And remember COVID, you had to have gloves on, you had to have the mask. My favorite angel, her name was Mallory. She was a nurse. She was my godson. God, did I love Mallory, you know? Never saw her face, but I heard her voice. Even in that coma, I heard her voice because her and I have talked and she's good friends with the family now. And I've seen that beautiful face. But when I heard her voice, I knew I was gonna be good for the day. And I wanted Mallory there with me, you know? I was in a coma, because I talked, I had a whole conversation with a nurse that didn't exist. And that's another story for another time. (laughs) But I was laying in this uh, this stretcher and I felt this skin to skin contact with me. And I heard this male voice, I couldn't see him, but I heard this very male voice came on and he said, I've given you two shots. Tell me when you're ready for the third. Now, my girls think it was God. My lungs were gone. My kidneys were gone. My third shot would have been my heart. And it was acting up. And I remember telling him, I don't want your third shot. I don't want it. And with that, I went back into my dark little sedated world. Wow. So I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that one out. I'm still wrestling with that one. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not sure Yeah. where well, I was with that one. You know, you know, if it was a hallucination, I don't know, you know. Well, I'm just glad that you're here. And I think it's beautiful that you can see, even though, 
Yeah. It's, it's, I think these experiences are so customized and I, you know, you could have easily gone and well, maybe you could have met Jesus, but then if you came back, you'd be questioning, well, how do I really know? You know, and the fact that, you know, maybe he's drawing you to him through some of this experience, Mm -hmm. but he gave you something else that was evidential. That's pretty amazing. And I want to see that picture of you on that porch. You have to send it to me when you get it. Cause that's so cool. It's so amazing. What a blessing for that family too. Um, so just seeing that God has a plan, um, things are not accidental. Um, you had your healing miracle, which praise God for that. Um, is there any other takeaway? I know you want people to know that they don't need to fear death. Oh, no. Um, Please don't live with that guilt and that fear, you know. Um, Yes, it's hard for those that are left behind. I know that. Um, But you are, you, you need to communicate with them that you're going to a beautiful, you're going home. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going home and that your spirit is going to live on you know i truly believe these bodies are our vessel yeah and that vessel wears out yes but our spirit returns home yeah you know has this and, whole <coughs> has it led you to pursue jesus more or have you found yourself reading the bible more has it changed your life with your faith all of the above <laughs> yes okay yes yes Randy, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing this very personal and multi-layered testimony with me today and for allowing me to publish it and share it with everyone. It's it's really phenomenal. I wanted to let each of you know that Randy's writing a book. It's called To the Veil and Back, Surviving COVID-19. And again, his full name is Randy Schieffer, S-C-H-I-E-F-E-R. I don't have an exact date on when that will be released, but I will let you know. And I wanted to take a moment too to let you know he is a, he's given me a personal email to attach in the YouTube comments. If you'd like to reach out to Randy, I know he'd love to hear from you. If your his testimony blessed you, that would be great if you want to reach out. And the last thing I want to do is just pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you. We praise you for who you are and that you love us and that you have prepared a place for us, that you have a perfect plan that is unfolding. And Lord, I thank you for the, what you did for Randy specifically, the miracle healing and giving him this testimony to come back and bless so many people with, I thank you for his beautiful family that rallied around him. I thank you for the emotional healing from all the trauma of all the work that he's done in his life. I can't even begin to imagine the traumas that he has witnessed and seen. And I know that you used him in those ways and um, they were, he was able to bless those families uniquely because of his own experiences. It's, it's just really amazing how you really do use all things. And, um, and Lord, I want to pray a special prayer for those people listening that may have lost a loved one to COVID. It's, it's a very difficult, um, it's very hard. Um, although we don't understand the whys of everything, Lord, we know that you're good and we trust you. And I just pray that those people would feel your comfort right now. I just pray that their healing would, would come. And, um, we thank you, Lord, for who you are, that your son that you sent to die for us so that we could be in heaven with you, Lord. And, uh, We praise you. We praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening today. If you have a miracle that you'd like to share with me, please reach out to me at everydaymiraclespodcast at gmail.com, or you can 
go to the website, everydaymiraclespodcast.com. Thank you and God bless.